Hello everyone, welcome to Smacking Jellyfish. Uh, I'm Frannick and there's Lily and this week we're talking about parrots for which the collective noun is a pandemonium. Yep, a pandemonium of parrots. A pandemonium of parrots. I think without further ado, we've yep. waffled enough, let's hop straight into fact enough. number one, which is my fact <laughs> this week. And it is that New Zealand's kakapo is so bad at surviving that conservationists <laughs> are using sperm drones and smart eggs to keep them from extinction. Yep. So, I mean, the kakapo is an interesting bird to say the least. Yeah. It's the only flightless and nocturnal parrot species. It's also the biggest, mm-hmm. uh, by mass anyway. Um, the hyacinth macaw is longer than it. Um, and it's also the biggest uh, parrot that can fly. Yep. And but by mass. And they're blue. They are yeah. very blue. Um, hyacinth. But by mass, the kakapo is the biggest. So kakapos are, like I said in the fact, very bad at surviving. Yeah, um, just a little bit. They just don't really seem to be made for the world, really. They seem like they, their natural purpose would just be to go extinct. Um, I yeah. hate to be sort of rude to them, but but it's true. I mean, they're, they're, the big obvious flaw is that they're flightless. They can't fly, so yeah. escaping predators um, is an issue. I don't understand why things, with the exceptions of maybe like penguins, because obviously they use them to swim, but why are things designed with wings but can't I fly? I know. If you could fly, just do it. I yeah, always like, wish I could fly all the time. Yeah, but yeah. but like... If you have, if you've gone to the effort of having wings, imagine how I know sad that's not you'd a be. personal choice. But no, I know, but, but imagine how annoyed you'd be if yeah. you had wings, but and you, couldn't you just fly. couldn't use them. Chickens. Not having wings and not flying is pretty annoying, but chickens, chickens. or ostriches—they <laughs> just kind of flap about. At least yeah. ostriches can run quite fast. They're quite yeah, I mean, I think ostriches' wings are also used for like protection purposes. Mm. Uh, they use them they're to like, cool, guard yeah. the eggs. But yeah, why have wings? Well, they're just terrifying. And not fly. I don't know, but the kakapo has yeah, just that. Yeah, they are a good example of... <laughs> so, they are. This is a parrot that's endemic to New Zealand, yeah. um, which means it's only found there. And um, it's critically endangered, um, as you've probably guessed from yeah, because they're the conservation efforts. they're poorly adapted. They are poorly adapted. So there are only about 147 of them left, as of 2019, yeah. anyway. Um, and uh, their name is from the Maori language. It means night parrot. Yep. Yeah. Um, and so... They're an unusual parrot. Let's start with that. Before we get into exactly why they're so bad at yeah, living. Yeah, they are just... every. If you made a list of parrots, mm. everything you'd think about in a parrot, and then did the opposite of that, Yeah. that's a kakapo. It would hardly make it on. But um, again, we should start by defining yeah. what a parrot actually is. So all parrots have curved beaks. Um, yep. That's a big defining characteristic. They have the big bill at the front um, with normally quite a severe overbite. The smaller, yeah. the bottom, the bottom bit of the beak is normally significantly smaller than the top part. Um, and the other defining characteristic is that they're zygodactyls. Yeah, which means they have four toes, four toes. on each foot, two pointing forwards and two back, um, as opposed to sort of what you'd call the standard configuration for a bird, I guess, which is uh, three forwards and one back. Mm. But it means they're very dexterous. Um, yep. They can climb things very well because they've got sort of double opposable toes, essentially. And it also means they're one of the only bird species, if not the only one, that um, uses their feet, like sort of like we use hands, yeah. where they hold food in them and they hold things in them and they can manipulate things to their mouths with them. So, Which is pretty essential for makes them pretty a lot unique. of other stuff that we talk about. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So the kakapo shares both of those characteristics with all other parrots. Yep. But I'd say that's pretty much where... Similarities end. Yeah. Yeah. So yeah, it's feathers. That's like it. Yeah, yeah. As feathers, it's green, and it's like a dactyl with a curved beak. That's that's why it's defined as a parrot. But it's really different to most other parrots. It's we've already mentioned nocturnal and flightless. Yeah. 
which is is weird for a parrot. You don't really think nighttime and parrots. It's no, they don't really go together. Um, I feel like the their bright colors really, you know, and also shine like in the sun. Trailing round on the floor in yeah, the dark. Yeah, exactly. Climbing trees without just being able to fly up them. I just it's I a bit don't strange. get it. I, you have wings. Yeah, exactly. But Use them. Yeah, um, they're a strange, strange animal. Yep. Uh, and other things that differentiate them heavily from other parrots is they're herbivorous which most parrots aren't. They're normally opportunistic. They sort of lean towards seeds and fruit normally, <laughs> but um, most most of them will eat anything they can come across, really. Uh, mm. Whereas, from what I understand, the kakapo won't eat meat, which is interesting. It's a- another thing that hinders its survival. Um, yeah. On top of the long list that we'll, we'll, we'll give we'll in a second. Going. Yeah, we'll keep going. They're also sexually dimorphic, which is unusual for parrots. Um, yep. So sexual dimorphism is when the male and the female of a species look so different um, that they might as well be another species. Mm. Not always, but um, it basically means they differ in... Like the peacocks. Yeah, like peacocks. So peacocks are a great example of sexual dimorphism, where the male is colourful blue with the massive tail. Really just nice to look at. Yeah, And the peahen. Whereas the peahen is... Looks like it's been found in a bin. Yeah, brown and ugly. Yeah, yeah. like a Finsbury Park pigeon. Oh god, yeah. Yeah. So so yeah, that's a that's the best example and the simplest probably yeah. of dimorphism. Um and so yeah, parrots rarely exhibit this. The the kakapo is one and the um Solomon Island Eclectus parrot is that another is one. A name. It is it is a name, but um Is that the one you showed me? So yeah, that, you yeah. sent this to me actually initially. It's oh. it's the one that's so different that they initially thought they were a different species. Yeah, because I think so one of them's green. I think yeah. the male is green the, and yeah. the female is red. And the female is like a really deep red with it's a purple really nice. purple tail. Yeah, it's yeah. really interesting, but um they look incredibly different. The kakapo, um the male and females don't differ that much. Um the females are smaller, I think, essentially. Yeah, I feel like that's um, rule of thumb for a lot of animals. For a lot of animals, yeah. Or the other way around, like spiders, where the males are, you know, a twentieth <laughs> of the size. But um Or octopi. But yeah, exactly. They're also polygynous. So polygyny is um sort of like a mating system where males compete for female attention and a big group of females mates with a single male. Yep. It's, you see it a lot in the animal kingdom, but it's atypical for parrots in that they're normally monogamous. They will stay with a partner for life a lot of the time. Yeah, yeah, they'll stay together, sleep together, do all this stuff together, uh, which is quite sweet. It is quite nice. I feel, yeah, it's it's nicer than humans, I think. Yeah, I know they just seem something like more. It's very nice. Like, they really take care of each it. other. They really yeah. actually care about each other. Yeah, there's no there's no polygamy going on um, unless it's polygyny. Uh, in the case of the kakapo, yeah. <laughs> which is it really just lets the parrot species down, really, doesn't it? But but it is a really cute animal. It's it's easy to relate to, and via that that leads us onto conservation. Oh yeah, onto onto the amazing amazing work of oh, these people. Yeah, that has truly astounded me, and I know it will again, even though yeah, you've told me about six times what the, they do. The effort the effort they go to is incredible. So we've already mentioned the kakapo isn't very good at surviving. Poor nope. thing. So. A lot of the reasons we've mentioned already, it can't fly, um, is a big one. Obviously, escaping predators is much harder as a bird when you have to waddle. And they freeze up when they face predators. They do. Which I feel um, like is another big, you know. Yeah, they can't no help sign. it. They just not only are they on the ground and not flying, they can't move. Yep. So essentially, if a kakapo encounters a predator, it dies, which yep. perhaps hearing that, it's not that surprising that there are only 147 left. They're also quite bad at mating. Uh, so mm-hmm. more than 50% of kakapo eggs turn out to be infertile they think this is because of inbreeding um, mainly because they only live on 
one i mean new zealand's not exactly small but you know relatively speaking quite a small island yeah um with not many of them left so they all kind of just you know do their breed do their breed do their thing do their breed yeah breed together <laughs> um so yeah that's unfortunate but it's not just down to how useless they are um <laughs> that they're that they're going extinct slowly it is there is some element of human harm there yeah um unfortunately so kakapos i mean we don't know but they were probably doing quite well before humans turned up like mm. most things like dodos um, yeah they've survived a while so i'm assuming they're not completely pointless but but yeah when we introduced cats and rats and um cats and rats yeah basically other sort of you know predatory mammals to, yeah. to new zealand that was when kakapos started having a big problem there's a lot more predators around essentially and they're kind of the perfect size to be preyed on by cats we should talk about the size as well because that's a big thing how big are they um so the kakapo again biggest parrot and the average is about uh two kilograms for the for average kakapo, kakapo. Yeah. yeah but they go up to four which yeah. is which is about the average house cat i think they could do if they could fly and one of them flew into you they yeah. can do quite a lot of damage. I think so. They're not. They're I mean, not intimidating, but they're a bit. Yeah, one of yeah. them. They'll put you on edge. Reasons why they can't fly. I don't think their wings could actually withstand that. Yeah. So, along with them being critically endangered, yep. comes heavy conservation work. Mm-hmm. Um, so, in the mid '90s, there were 51 left in the world. Um, like I've said, there are 147 now, which is a big improvement. Yep. But because they need so much help, um, conservationists mm-hmm. have really taken a high tech approach yeah. to helping them survive. So. The semen drones, yeah, um, the, semen the, drones. the elephant in the room, really. So it's it's a bit self-explanatory. Um, I don't feel like there's much explaining to do here. Uh, it's essentially a sort of mechanical male parrot. I don't know what they look like, but that's how I imagine it. Yeah, I, I can't see how it could be anything else. Otherwise, yeah. I feel like a female... Yes, they're stupid, but I feel like a female parrot wouldn't allow... Mm. It's, it's quite crude technology. Else. It is quite literally, they... They performed a genetic survey a yep. few years ago. They figured out which males are the best to breed with and which parrots can breed with each other without inbreeding, um, which is quite important for uh, the survival like, of the yeah, species. Yeah, it's pretty essential. It's pretty essential. And um, and so, yeah, they literally, what they do is they take the semen of the most viable male kakapos. Uh, they fly it with these drones across the island to a female that would be, you know, good. a good mate. Yeah. And then sort of just inject it mm. into the female. Um yeah through like a false drone mating process so yeah it's really lovely and um the other high-tech thing they've been doing is as smart eggs as they call them smart eggs i think are pretty cool they're pretty cool yeah they're not it's like they're not that smart either yeah it's it's much less intrusive the smart eggs are really quite a simple Mm. thing so the conservationists don't want to leave the fate of the eggs up to fate um they want to have control over it so um as soon as any kakapo in new zealand lays eggs they're taken away to be incubated um, in a lab and they're replaced with these smart eggs which essentially just vibrate a little bit and make like chick sounds yep. um just so that the female's used to that and then they sort of sneak in the chicks at some point um, how do you do that do see these, that's what do i was birds, wondering like leave the nest i think they must go and you know get food well they're not um they're not monogamous so it's not like one partner can go uh, and get food so true. i guess the mother has to leave the nest yeah otherwise i don't get how they do that they have to like sedate the bird or just yeah. distract it with like no a i think feather. i think the mother does have to leave the nest at some point and they take advantage of that to yeah. get the eggs under her the smart eggs aren't the um the only strange thing the scientists do they also um don't want to leave the raising of the chick up to the mother alone not only is she not allowed to sit on her own eggs no she's um, just not trusted she's also all. monitored 24 7 so every single kakapo that's known 
um, underneath their nest resides a group of volunteers or, you know, zoologists or conservationists or somebody yeah. who wants to help um, in, in conserving them and they'll monitor them essentially they'll perform nest maintenance yep. as they call it when necessary uh, if anything happens to the chick they help um, and so they're really not leaving it down to the course of nature and let's be honest natural selection to eliminate the kakapo yeah. they're really being kept alive um, they're very determined that they are which which you know they are cute animals which, i understand why yeah. people are invested in it yeah so i mean it might seem like it's difficult to justify such a massive conservation effort for one animal and even the the group that um i think it's just called new zealand kakapo conservation i think even they admit that you know they could save probably three or four other species with the same amount of effort but the way they justify putting so much time and effort into the kakapo is that it's just a relatable animal to human beings mm. um it's easy to sympathize with because it is a bit useless um yeah. and so yeah well it's hard to take seriously it's a good face for animal conservation it's a good animal yeah, to represent I think it parrots are quite relatable yeah i mean some of them are this very is definitely yeah something that yeah. we shall talk about later but yeah, we will. they are yeah they're very sort of like a less scary version of monkeys you know they're like weirdly human yeah for obvious reasons i think the, the but it's like weirdly human, human in a different way yeah that's slightly more acceptable it's in more like a cute way because it doesn't actually look like a person pandas are a really good example of this they're they sort of fulfill a very similar role to kakapos because if you think of like the wwf logo it's a panda yeah, face it's, it's cute this is because people love pandas yeah exactly. so the kakapo is a similar kind of animal where it really raises awareness essentially for conservation in new zealand and one particular kakapo that does this oh, quite yeah. well <laughs> i forgot about yeah him. one particular kakapo that is a really good um it's the face of representative new yeah they call him a spokesbird for yeah. new zealand conservation and his name is sirocco he has more than 200,000 Facebook followers. Yeah. Um, I checked yesterday and it was like 228,000, I think. So, you know, for a bird, That's not pretty, bad. That's pretty impressive. Um, and he, well, admittedly, he rose to fame through questionable means. It was a bit dodgy, but it was also very funny. So oh, yeah, <laughs> a couple yeah, no, of years may, back. Maybe may yeah. may Let's tell Sirocco's story a little bit. So um, Stephen Fry, yep. uh, we all know and love Stephen Fry, mm -hmm. um, a couple of years ago was doing a series of nature documentaries. And from this resulted a BBC clip that you can find on YouTube called Shagged by a Rare Parrot. <laughs> um, so one of the zoologists who was working on this program with Stephen Fry um, was taking pictures of Sirocco. Mm -hmm. And Sirocco decided to try and mate with him, uh, presumably because he was wearing a green shirt. And Sirocco just sort of thought he was probably a massive female kakapo. Just absolutely humongous. Absolutely, yeah. Hench female kakapo yeah. but um yeah so he jumped on this man's head started mating with him and obviously the internet went crazy yeah. for it I as mean, you fair would enough. yeah exactly i mean pretty, yeah. it's a good video yeah it's a pretty great video i highly recommend uh, everyone listening goes and watches it oh, yeah. uh, but but so yeah so now sirocco though he rose to fame through um uh slightly dodgy non-family friendly means uh what he's doing now is is good he's encouraging conservation of other species not just the kakapo yeah. and so yeah i think really the the putting this much effort you know s flying sperm drones around new zealand is is justified mm. um not just to save the kakapo but animals drone. around the word sperm drone it's it's a term it's quite the term isn't it um what was the other term for cloacal it? carrier yeah i don't even yeah. know if that one's better yeah but so that's the kakapo yep the kakapo might be big but it's not the biggest parrot that the world has ever seen, no. as some scientists found in 2008. So back then, in 2008, a 16 million year old parrot fossil 
um, was unearthed at St. Bathans in New Zealand, which is this like big famous archaeological site. Basically, they found lo- loads of like bird fossils there and other small animals over the years. Yep. But this one was particularly important because it was what they call Squawkzilla, um, which is a, a parrot more than twice the weight of the Kakapo. So yeah. it would weigh in at about seven kilos and stand 90 centimeters tall, which is which is half my height. Yeah, three meters. Which is pretty significant. Yeah, three standard. Yeah, I three mean, feet. That, that is that is pretty cool. Yeah, three cool, feet, tall. ninety centimeters, very very tall, and just overall quite terrifying. So the the history of this this bone they found it was a tibio tarsi bone, which yeah. is the drumstick essentially, the thigh bone, and it just sort of lay in a lab for ten years, about a decade, because everyone thought it was an eagle bone, and obviously you know. They'd get to look at it eventually, but it's not that exciting no. um, of a thing. So, But then one day, an, a graduate student, of all people, looked at <laughs> it and thought, hang on, this looks like a parrot bone. Yeah. So they compared it to other parrots and decided it was indeed a parrot. And this surprised everyone, so they gave it the Latin name Heracles Inexpectatus, yep. which is a fantastic Latin name. It is a good name. But yeah, it's like a really prehistoric version of the Kakapo. They do seem they very similar. And lots of similarities. Yeah, so they it was probably flightless. Yeah. Um, and also used its beak and feet to could scramble up trees. Could you imagine if something that big could fly? It would be terrifying. Well, I... then again, you do get like vultures and... Yeah, but like I imagine it to be just... Yeah, but like, I guess really... I know what you mean. I've said stocky about six times, yeah, but stocky, stocky is, is the only word. word. Yeah, so because vultures, I guess, are kind of... Um, Lanky. Stick thin. They're skinny, yeah. Their so you can imagine it flying. Bald heads are like. It's true. Mm. Eagles, though, they're quite hefty. Yeah, I imagine maybe something slightly more like an yeah, eagle. Yeah, but, but still like aerodynamic. No, a flying a flying kakapo that's double the size of a modern kakapo. That would scare me. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Speaking of them being scary, the the man who's in charge of kakapo conservation um, says that kakapos can be quite aggressive and one twice the size would be quite formidable is a quote from him and another paleontologist said that when you think about how smart parrots are that's scary um very scary which it is again we don't get the idea that the kakapo is very smart no Uh, but say potentially this prehistoric squawkzilla was quite smart it would be terrifying yeah parrots are taking over the world in more ways than one already um i don't think we need one that's half our height that would really seal the deal we'd be done for it basically the same height as me at this rate it's pretty it's pretty close Yeah. yeah (laughs) <laughs> yes, because I'm 90 centimetres tall. Yeah. So, I mean, it's not overly surprising um, that New Zealand produced such a massive bird at one point because nah. it does have a history of things like evolving. Huge, yeah, it's called like gigantism or island syndrome, I think, which um, essentially when things are left alone, isolated from predators for a long time, they just go massive because why not? Yeah, why just wouldn't have you? a bit of a giant well, that's party. That's what we've done. But yeah, it's still... Still a surprising, unexpected find and very much very cool. Mm. Okay, I think it's time for our second fact, yeah, which the is... second fact, which is that parrots have been observed to crush seashells to, like, increase their calcium intake, which, very cool, very important for yeah, parrots. Yeah, it's tool use. Yeah, tool use. Rare among animals, even smart ones. Yeah. So the, the people from the University of York observed some parrots and noticed that they were using pebbles and, like, date shells... In like this was in captivity. They don't really know if it's outside of captivity, but you can assume mm, that it is. Yeah. So they use pebbles and they would crush up shells with it. Which I mean, 
That... A few animals do this. It's not completely unprecedented, but for, no, a, for a bird, it's unusual. It is. So, so it's there are there are some that do it. So like seagulls will drop like crabs and clams and things onto rocks, which but that seems you know that that's 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 slightly different. I feel like that's a step down in sophistication from this because this is like not only realizing that you can grind a seashell to powder, which then, I feel is yeah, quite complicated, but finding something to do it with and having the confidence to even try it. It's really important for females to have like an increase in calcium uh, for their eggs. The actual behavior of this crushing the shells mimics that because it increases around mating season. Yeah. And it's sort of like... So a, it's the males that do it, yeah, isn't it? which is a bit unusual. that primarily... So obviously females do do it, but primarily the male parrot in their like pair because these these are the ones that are they are monogamous yeah monogamous. unlike the useless kakapo <laughs> so the males primarily crush it up and what they think is that they like regurgitate the paste t- for the females because they do that with a lot of other foods which is both revolting and very sweet at the same yeah, time it's, it's very nice would, of them if someone regurgitated a broken seashell <laughs> to me it would be an immediate no, but I mean, for I the think parents, I'd be flattered. So it's it's a, in a part of like their mate ritual and like their bond and stuff. And what's we yeah, this alone is quite interesting. But what's even more interesting is that they have observed that some of these birds will share their tools, which is That's pretty cool. quite unusual. Yeah, yeah, it's a clever it's thing. It's just to be a able really to do. smart thing to do. Yeah, it is. But we touched on their um, good looks. A second ago. Always. And uh, something we can slip in here as well that we actually didn't plan, but that I just remembered oh, is that, um, yeah, where they get their good looks from, the colourful pigments that parrots are oh, so I well known for, about yeah, this. is an antimicrobial uh, chemical on their, on their feathers, which stops parasites from ruining their beautiful plumage. And it also gives them the colours that they're so famous for. Yeah. Also, I think the last thing I have on the calcium is they believe that the actual tool use of it yeah. is just... Because it's less painful. Yeah. If you're like smashing your beak against a, a shell, yeah. it's gonna hurt. And not very smart. In the long term, it's not gonna be very good. Mm. So that's like another step that they've realized that this is more beneficial. It does show for them. another level of intelligence, knowing that you can preserve yourself by using something. They're using something else. Yeah. yeah. It's it's a lot like humans, you know, driving instead of walking. <laughs> yeah. Thousands or of miles. Or just like yeah. any any tools that we've made ever. Yeah. Exactly. It's, they, it's smart. Stop you from abusing your body too much. Yeah, which, and are yeah. more effective most of the yeah. time. So all animals show self-preservation to some extent, but I think this is taking it a step further yeah. and showing some proper, proper intelligence. We couldn't touch on parrot intelligence without talking about Alex. It would be illegal. So here we go. Alex the parrot. Alex is a very well-known parrot, so yeah. chances are you've already heard of him. But um, Alex was a 30-year-long language experiment, essentially, mm-hmm. um, by animal psychologist Dr. Irene Pepperberg. And... She sort of taught Alex to talk. He was easily the smartest bird who's ever like lived. Like the most comprehensive. He was a little bit of a genius, uh, essentially. So I'm going to start off again by ruining yeah, his Alex name. for you. Yeah, um, this this significantly... Again, I think part of the reason parrots are so appealing is how human they are. Yeah. And unfortunately, Alex's name takes all of his humanity away from him uh, because... Alex seems pretty innocent until mm. you find out that it stands for avian language experiment um, or avian learning experiment, depending on who you ask, which... Uh, yes, he's not human, but it dehumanizes him a little bit. It takes away his whole, Alex's cuteness Yeah, his a whole bit. 
Alex was a very human parrot. Um, yeah, very, very human. A lot of the studies on him essentially compared him to children, human children, because that was the easiest way to measure his intelligence. Mm. I mean, animals are often measured against children. Um, and Alex was pretty incredible at this. So at two years old, he was answering questions correctly, designed for six-year-olds. Now, we couldn't actually find if six-year-olds means six-year-old children or six-year-old parrots. But I think it's safe I to feel assume like it's children. children. Yeah, so that in itself is pretty impressive. Yeah. Um, but what really, really set Alex apart is that he he really engaged in conversation. He seemed to understand. He didn't just remember words and regurgitate them. Regurgitate them. He understood that you could interact. Um, yeah. And so, so Alex's historical significance, first of all, was that before Dr. Papperberg started all of this, she was she was mocked a little bit, and her ideas weren't that held as that significant in the scientific community but alex very quickly proved that parrots were far more intelligent than we took them for mm. um and now thanks to pepperberg's work essentially and alex's participation in it um they're sort of widely respected as um you know i've heard them described as feathered apes yeah there's just i don't know completely a new route to go down because there are only so many times that you can yes there are lots of like variations of you have like yeah. gorillas and monkeys and like apes and stuff but they're all fundamentally built the same way. But like parrots is such a different thing. Parrots I think it's going to open up quite a, a different thing yeah. for the future. I think so. Well, again, he was often compared to children. The way Pepperberg quantifies it, um, obviously this is in simplified terms, but um, she often said that he had the intelligence of a five-year-old child somewhere around there, uh, but the emotional intelligence of a two-year-old. Um, <laughs> so he could be quite rude at times. Um, but I think it just adds to his character. So I should say how how Dr. Pepperberg went about this, because her work is very unique mm. um, among among scientists, which is probably partially why she was mocked, often when someone is doing groundbreaking research. Yeah, um, you, you always get made fun of first. Exactly, until people realize what you're doing is... Amazing. Yeah, pretty amazing. So she used something that she pioneered, um, a completely new method called the model rival technique. Um, and so this essentially involved an assistant trainer. So... Uh, Dr. Pepperberg and an assistant would have a conversation in front of Alex. And so the model would be uh, Dr. Pepperberg and then the rival would be the assistant. And so the the assistant would essentially demonstrate to Alex how Alex was meant to be behaving in mm -hmm. this conversation. And then the idea was that, and this worked, is that Alex would get jealous of the assistant and consider them as a rival. And then that he would want to do the things that the assistant was doing as well. So he would really, want to participate. Yeah, I don't really understand how that works. How, what if he just didn't get jealous? He could have not, but I think they had a feeling that he was intelligent enough to think, I can do that. Because I think the idea was that um, him and Dr. Pepperberg were quite close, despite him being, you know, an avian language experiment um, in her <laughs> eyes. But I think they were quite bonded. So seeing her give all this praise and, I don't know, probably like food or whatever to yeah, this assistant researcher. I guess that makes sense. Um, Alex probably would have been like, hey, I want to do that too. Um, but it, however it did, it worked. Yeah, it, um, it clearly worked. Yeah, and so, but the real the real genius behind this, the key to this was switching the model and the rival. So sometimes Dr. Papperberg would assume the rival um, role. And this showed Alex that conversation was interactive and that it wasn't a one-sided thing. You know, it's sort of like... Um, humans training dogs where if you tell your dog to sit um, yeah. it sits but you know obviously your, your dog would never tell you to sit <laughs> but with this it was different so Papaberg made sure to make clear to Alex that he could inter interject and this this resulted in him being very intelligent doing interesting things yeah. like um, he would interrupt conversations when people made mistakes while speaking and correct them which is pretty incredible that's that's like a 
whole new level of intelligence and he'd also tell uh dr pepperberg to calm down if she was in a bad mood <laughs> uh, and so on so he could really take the initiative and have a two-sided conversation which made him unique but um alex wasn't called the einstein of the parrot world for for no reason he this is just the we're, we're barely scraping the surface of his intelligence it goes yeah. a lot deeper than this so one of the things alex is most famous for is being the first and only animal to ever ask a question and not only was it any question it was technically an existential one yeah, um, which is pretty incredible I, would, I wouldn't consider it existential no, yes i know it's, technically it's a bit of a disappointing existential, existential question, question but like yeah i was thinking more so when you when you hear life? the term existential question you sort of think you know pondering Why about the I universe existing? yeah well no alex um alex looked in a mirror yeah. and he said what color um and that was the day he learned that he was gray and yeah. that it was him in the mirror and i suppose Again, yeah, to humans, it might seem a little bit anticlimactic. It's not, he's not a philosopher, no, so not, to speak. It doesn't really rival like Plato, but... But he can recognise that it matters what colour he is, and mm. he can apply the concept of colour to himself, which... And the fact that he was interested in it. Like, he wanted exactly. to know. Yeah, which is, is, I think, I don't think apes have ever demonstrated that level of intelligence. I don't think... I don't think so. I, I think you could, you could probably teach a... You could probably teach, like, a t chimpanzee to recognise that it's orange. Yeah. But the fact that Alex asked this of his own volition without anyone prompting him to um, just shows a sort of very human, deeper kind of curiosity that I feel like would be quite unusual in any animal, let alone a bird. Dr. Pepperberg is very much dedicated to studying parrot intelligence. She's just a little bit. Especially since she got Alex. Um, so she now runs a, a lab doing just that at Harvard. She now has a new version of Alex, Alex 2.0. Um, so Alex, sad. yeah, sadly died in uh, in 2010. It's not actually called Alex 2.0. It, it I'd hope not. It does have a name, but I can't remember. I think it might be like Jeffrey or something. It doesn't quite but hit the same. No, Alex is, Alex is, but Alex is just an icon. You, yeah. you couldn't replace Alex. But the thing that really makes Alex incredible is how he did things of his own. He, he made things up. And, and asked them without ever being taught. Mm -hmm. So another thing he did quite famously was in 2005. They think he sort of may have understood the concept of zero, which um, no other animal has ever done, especially not figured out by itself. Yeah. Um, so you can actually teach chimpanzees, and they've been doing it for a while, that zero means nothing. It means there's nothing there. And they do understand that, but this is something that humans introduced to them. Um, the unique thing about Alex was... He'd been taught the word none previously. So in identifying two objects, he'd be given two objects... Um, that were identical in size and asked which one was bigger than the other and he'd say none um, so that was something he knew how to do but then one day they presented him with a with a plate essentially with loads of blocks on it and they were groups of two blocks three blocks and i think six blocks um, and they asked alex which group had five blocks in it and obviously no group had five blocks in it so yeah. he said none and yes it's a bit of a tenuous tenuous link to say he understands the concept but, of zero yeah i mean but he applied the word the yeah, yeah. zero and nothing are obviously the same thing pretty yeah, much. Yeah, pretty much. And I he mean, understood that there was nothing there, yeah. which means... And he made yeah. the link between none and nothing. Which is pretty incredible. By himself. Exactly, yeah. No one taught him that, which, which again, that's what made Alex so special, is that yeah. he did these things by himself. Things that, like asking what colour. Uh, he had no reason to do that, really. Children don't really care what they look like. I mean, I think really people get self-conscious at like 10 yeah, you know, and so yeah, Alex really asking that is is quite advanced, for, you know, for a parrot. Yeah, and like his ability to actually realize that none in the context of two shapes being exactly the same, and then none as in nothing is there. That's a pretty, that's a pretty big jump by yourself. Yeah, exactly. Um, 
Alex was an incredible bird. It must be said, Pepperberg emphasizes this a lot herself, is that um, she didn't actually teach Alex to speak English. He could reproduce English sounds and he could react to them, but um, yeah. he didn't actually grasp the concept of manipulating words. Yeah, he, he only knew about 100 words, yeah. which... Um, which is still impressive. Which is a lot of words. And the thing is, he knew how to use all of them in context. He I knew think that's how to use them correctly. There's one thing to be able to re like regurgitate a sound. Yeah. And there's another to like actively understand how to use it and then go and use it. Yeah, exactly. Um, to So essentially, the I think the best way to describe it is that the Pepperberg and her research team taught him the words, but he would put them in sentences yeah. by himself. Like, can I have some water? You know, he'd know what water is, but then he'd realized that if he wanted some, he could ask for it. Yeah. Which again, it seems simple to us. But, but that it's is a, pretty... It's no other animal really grasps that. You know, they can point out things, uh, but to connect the word water with thirst... Mm. is a whole other thing altogether. And even, so. I do find it really weird thinking about it, but like actually physically being able to make these sounds, as you were saying, it's all to do with mimicking, which is important to parrots, yeah. obviously. But being able to mimic, it's not like, it's not like if someone said something in a different language and you could say that word. Okay, that's one thing. Yeah. But it's like an animal making a noise and you and perfectly replicating it. And then understanding what it means and then going on to use it. Exactly, yeah. That's it's it, we, we need to remember, it's important to say that parrots, they aren't adapted for human speech. So they don't no. have vocal cords. The only the way they make human-like sounds and all the sounds they make um, is all just diverting air through their beaks in different ways. So really it's incredible that they can grasp quite complicated um, words and, yeah. and use them. And, you know, just the fact that they can mimic human speech is impressive enough. The fact that Alex could apply it. It's um, like it's a was, whole other stuff. Was even better. So so yeah. Even though Alex's vocabulary wasn't extensive, he was he was a bird genius. And what he did for the for the, the bird avian research world, yeah, it yeah. can't be understated. Um, but there have been birds that have known a lot more words. Yeah. So he only knew about hundred. Yeah. But the current Guinness uh, World Record holder is a bird called Puck, who is a budgie. I think he knew an estimated one thousand seven hundred and twenty-eight words. Yeah, which, which is a lot. Is a lot of words. Yeah. So again, he he was the opposite of Alex. He couldn't apply them at all. I don't think. Maybe a little bit, but he I could mean, just repeat yeah, them. There must be a bit of understanding going on. Probably. I mean, if you're you know if you're intelligent enough to even remember that much at once, there must be something going on in your brain. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but it was essentially just mimicry. He was just copying and memorizing. It was, yeah, a lot of memorizing and not fully grasping it. So his memory was great, but I don't think he could use them in context. I think that's no. uh, a whole different thing. But, but, but I mean, yeah. yeah, even, I mean, you, obviously you can't compare him to Alex, but there is a clear differentiation, whereas Puck could... It's different. Yeah. Puck remembered words. That that was his thing. Alex could apply them. Yeah, and that, it's and just a different both, kind of intelligence. They're yeah. both like incredible things. Okay, let's yeah. move on to fact number three, which is my fact. Um, and it is that somewhere in a garden centre in Surrey, there's a parrot called Charlie. Yep. He once belonged to Winston Churchill, and now he's currently spending his retirement shouting anti-Nazi profanities at uh, passing customers. If what we know about him is accurate, if what his owner claims about him is accurate, he is by far the oldest bird to ever have lived. So Peter Oram, who's his owner, claims that he was born in 1899. Uh, which would make him 122 years old. Which is an old parrot. Which is... Because they live that's up a to very like, old parrot. They live in the world up to about 80. 80 years old and in the world, yeah. a couple in the captivity obviously live a lot longer. But this is... Yeah, but this is... Charlie this is something is, else. It is 
it is beyond what's even been claimed by other people. Yeah. It, that, Charlie would be an old parrot. So Peter Oram uh, is his current owner, and he claims that his father-in-law, Percy Dabner, sold Charlie to Churchill, so Winston Churchill, in 1937. Yep. Just before the start of the war, and that Churchill owned him up until his death in 1965, when Oram bought him from Churchill to display in his pet shop. So this would have made Charlie a very significant parrot, because it would have meant that Charlie was essentially the only person who knew exactly what was going on in Churchill's office at all times during the height of the Second World War. Yeah, the be able to claim that you sat in there with Winston Churchill is pretty cool. The war rooms were a very secretive place. Yeah. Uh, not many people were allowed in there. So, you know, if Charlie was sitting there on a perch, it would have been pretty incredible. But the she thing is, um, she probably wasn't, uh, is no, the she thing. So probably, she definitely... The thing that we found out while researching parrots uh, is that the documentation on their lives is almost universally terrible. It's um, absolutely shambles. Yeah, no one ever knows exactly how old they are or where they came from because of how popular the trade in them is and how popular pets they are. They just sort of turn up. Yep. Um, and, you know, the, the origins of, of parrots are very hard to trace. And so Charlie was definitely born at least before around 1965, yep. which still would have made, made her a very old parrot. But the, the claim that she's 120... More than that is, you know, it's big, but the, but it's, the big it's thing, the, the elephant in the room that we haven't touched on yet is the anti-Nazi profanities. So Oren claims that, that. Um, these were taught to Charlie by Churchill yep. um, during Charlie's time with him. The, yeah, profanities, I feel like, need to be stated. Yeah. Her personal favorite was fuck Hitler or <laughs> fuck the Nazis. Yeah, both pretty good. <laughs> yeah, and I feel like... The sentiment's okay. Yeah, she's clearly in the aligned herself with the correct morals. Yeah, but perhaps it's not something you'd want children to hear. No. Um, you'd see why the Churchill family wouldn't want uh, Churchill to have a reputation as someone who taught his parrot to say fuck Hitler, even though the sentiment is, you know, correct. Yeah. It's it's a, it's the a vulgar way of putting it. Yeah. yeah, and so the controversy here is that they claim that Churchill never had a parrot. Uh, Chartwell, his country estate, yep. um, for pretty much his entire life. I think he bought it in like 1922 or something. So um, he owned it for nearly 40 years. It's now managed by the National Trust. And the team there, the management team of Chartwell, they've said they've looked through all documentation that they could find and found no evidence of Churchill ever owning a parrot. But this is where the discrepancies start. And this is where this gets interesting because they yeah. say he did own a budgie, which is a type of parrot we have to point out. And, you know, that's a... Fair mistake to make. You could not know that a budgie is a I parrot. Mean, I mean, it's not I mean, common knowledge. I can't know. I didn't. Neither did I. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. So, so you know, you learn something new every day. Budgies yeah. are parakeets, which are a subspecies of parrot. Yeah. But but that's not where it ends. That that little that little error no, in biology. That's, that's one small. No, that's error, just that's really the tip one. of the iceberg. So, yeah. um, when when asked about it, his daughter, Lady Soames, Churchill's daughter, she said that uh, Churchill did have a parrot for three years just before the war. It was an African grey called polly called polly which is a very boring parrot name yeah, uh, a probably. typical one but there's so that's quite a big discrepancy because his management team say he never owned a parrot but he owned a budgie and his daughter says he owned a parrot in the exact time period when he would have allegedly bought charlie yeah, bought yeah. Charlie. and and there's more there's there more, more conspiracy because uh lady Soames said that the african gray he owned had a sort of red face that's which a quote a, a big lie which is yeah african greys i've i've seen i've looked all over and i couldn't find any pictures of african greys with yeah. red faces they are as you'd expect light gray yeah alex um, is like a, a staple for the african greys alex yeah alex was an african grey so so they are a grey parrot they do have red tail feathers which yeah, it could I'm, possibly be I'm a source of confusion she probably 
may have got a bit mixed up. Probably, but still the amount of little weird errors in this make it interesting, yeah, especially it considering how insistent everybody around Charlie is that he was Churchill's parrot. Yeah. Yeah, so disappointingly, disappointingly, Charlie the parrot doesn't say fuck Hitler anymore. I couldn't actually find if he was still alive. He was definitely still alive um, in about 2005 when there was a spurt of media about, about him. Yeah, yeah. Um, but um, in his old age, apparently, he's resorted to just saying hello and goodbye. Um, mellowed which, down a little yeah, bit. Yeah, very much mellowed down from, from fuck Hitler. That's quite a step, <laughs> that's, quite quite a step, step. down. But, uh, but, you know, maybe he's more child-friendly now. Heathfield Nurseries yeah. is the name of this garden centre, apparently. But and it's closed yeah. now. Um, yeah. I tried to call the number um, that's provided online to find if Charlie's still alive, but it was a deadline. So either Charlie is peacefully living with Peter or I'm still somewhere at the ripe old age of 122. Or, or he's dead. Or she's dead. Yeah, she's dead. <laughs> Charlie, the female parrot. Yeah. There are, again, dozens of claims of parrots that are very old, but... Um, yeah, the old, the, like... Yeah. Officially, the oldest parrot, according to Guinness um, World Records, is Cookie. Cookie died in August 2016 at the ripe old age of 82. It could have been 83. There was a month's discrepancy in that, which would have made her a year older, but Guinness accepted this. Um, they deemed it good enough. And um, and so, yeah, officially, Cookie is the oldest parrot to ever have lived. Yeah, and um, she still holds that title today. Yeah, but again, there are so many claims of older parrots that I, I doubt, I think a parrot has almost certainly lived for longer. Again, they live up to 80 years in the wild, so yeah, this it's is hard to believe that 82 yeah, is the maximum we can get In captivity, to. yeah. Exactly. But, um, but, I mean, the next parrot you're going to talk about, I really feel like he will be the one to take over. Yeah, so I, yeah, so... Most likely the parrot who will take the crown from Cookie is Fred, who is a sulfur-crested cockatoo. Fred might be my favourite parrot out this there. This is, I think, with your little backstory with them, This is the wholesome part of the podcast. Get I ready. I really like this bit. This is fantastic. So Fred is a, sul- a sulfur-crested cockatoo who lives in the Bonnerong Wildlife Sanctuary in Tasmania, Australia. Mm. He's very old. So He is old. I actually emailed the Bonnerong Wildlife Sanctuary because back in 2014, um, Fred got a letter from the Queen, Queen Elizabeth II, yep. um, for reaching the ripe old age of 100 years old. Um, it's a bit of a tradition in Britain and I guess the Commonwealth that everyone who becomes a centenarian receives a letter from the Queen and yeah. Fred was no exception. Yeah, and apparently this now extends to parrots. Yeah, so Fred in 2014 got a bunch of media coverage, as, as does happen with these things, and yep. then just vanished off... The face, the face of, of the earth. Yeah, the earth. Just I couldn't find anything about him. And I was really worried because Fred looked really nice and I kind of grew attached to him. So I emailed Bonnerong Wildlife Sanctuary. And unlike Heathfield Nurseries Garden Centre, they do exist. Yep. Um, and I got a reply from Kat, who works there. And she told me that Fred is doing absolutely brilliantly. He's yep. still alive. He's 108 now, at least. Um, and yeah, he's he doesn't fly anymore, but he dances about, sings and um just yeah living his life exactly the staff who take care of him say he by all accounts he acts like he was he's a two-year-old so he's doing pretty well and um yeah as of 2016 he hadn't been to the vet for for 10 years for yeah. anything serious at all and from what i understand that still continued so fred is in brilliant health um and they yeah they sent you some photos yeah, exactly the photos of it him. absolutely made my day they're like the, nothing is wrong with him. No, First he looks. Glance. He's he's beautiful. He looks fantastic. He he's is. got the big yellow crest on his head, which yeah. um, is where sulfur crested cockatoos get their name. And he's just looking. He's, he's just like, looking got young like and sprightly. All of his feathers. He is in good yeah, shape. Yeah, they're all white and not scruffy. He yeah. looks brilliant. Yeah, he looks fantastic. And uh, 
you know, I guess if he's officially old enough to get a letter from the Queen, he's official enough for the Guinness Book of Records to accept him as the oldest parrot to ever have lived when he dies. Yeah, so. when he dies. I'm I'm hoping I would buy that edition. Not that he of, dies. No, no, not that he dies. <laughs> I'm hoping that he gets it when yeah. he does eventually die. He deserves it. Um, so I mentioned that he might be older than 108. They, um, they essentially waited a few years before telling Queen Elizabeth that he was uh, a centenarian, uh, just to make sure. Um, so he could have been as old as 105 in 2016 when he got the letter, but they just call it 100 to be safe because uh, again, tracing him is difficult it's as difficult with most stuff. pirates. So yeah, he may he may well be close to 120 now, which uh, which is pretty cool. It's very impressive. You know, Fred won't last forever, unfortunately, yeah, as much we as might it's have tragic. To make a trip. Exactly. So I think you should drop everything, and if you're there, you should go and visit Fred because I think it's a he's a really monumental bird. He's historically very significant. Oh, yeah. I think this is a perfect time to move <laughs> on to fact number four, which is... Jimi Hendrix is entirely responsible for London's infestation of green parakeets, except he really, really isn't. No, he's not, is he? But um, people like to believe he is, which uh, is more of a sexy uh, story than what is probably the cause of yeah, London's parakeet actually, infestation. Actually looking into the parakeet infestation, I was a... Not surprised, but a yeah. bit disappointed. It's a bit boring. The, the the truth is a bit disappointing, but we should start with saying that if you're not familiar with with London, if oh, you yeah. if you don't live here, you probably have no clue what's going on. But so if you lived here for any noticeable amount of time, um, or even if you've visited for I'd say more than a week, you you probably know that um, London is absolutely swarming with these with little green parrot creatures it's yeah it's really it's really bizarre it's really strange they're really out of place here and it's not something i realized until i was maybe about like 14 or 15 yeah no so i found out about them a few years ago when we moved to the house we currently live in yeah. um we have a flock of, of of parakeets living a few gardens down from us and they sort of swoop over our roof every once in a while yeah. and so i saw them one day and i I thought like, well, they don't look like they're meant to be here. I'll look them up. Yeah. And um, and yeah, so what they are is ring-necked parakeets. Mm. Um, some people call them rose-ringed parakeets, I think. Um, again, they're sexually dimorphic. The males have a red ring around their neck. The females don't. Oh, um, they're just green. Yeah, I just I just remembered that now out of the blue. <laughs> uh, but, but yeah, so uh, London's full of them. They're actually native to India, we should say. But India yeah. only has about 10,000 of them. Whereas in England, uh, mostly in the London metropolitan area... We and have an well. estimated 31,000. Yep. And counting, they breed, unlike the kakapo, they're they, very good they at breeding. They breed. They breed, yeah. yeah. I'll give some background on the Jimi Hendrix thing. Yeah, go um, In 1968, Hendrix allegedly left his apartment in Mayfair, walked a couple of streets um, to Carnaby Street, and released a mating pair of rose-ringed rose parakeets. Um, yeah, and this pair was called Adam and Eve. Yeah, which is I appropriate. I feel like that really uh, fits with the... It is. If you want to believe this... That he created exactly. the uh, it's, massive it's, explosion. That works. They're appropriate names. Yeah, exactly. But yeah. Um, I mean, not only is the idea that 31,000 parakeets came from two birds in the 1960s unlikely, um, it's also not even confirmed that he ever did own two rosary yeah. parakeets. So, you know, it works. I think Jimi Hendrix was the kind of person who sort of would release two parakeets for no reason. I could he's imagine he's that. shrouded in mystery. You can see why people would want to believe this. They're very sexy theories that, you know, Jimi Hendrix, Audrey Hepburn or George Michael released these birds and yeah. now they're all over London. The reality is it's, it's slightly bit, more dull, I think. Disappointing, yeah, to say the least. Yeah, it's more disappointing. It's extremely plausible and definitely makes sense. So I think, yeah, we talked about earlier, parrots were really popular. Yeah. They, people wanted... The parrots. They, they make pretty pets. cool pets, yeah. yeah. So there was like a big influx in them. 
And so one of the theories that really sounds like plausible is yeah. that during various stages of transportation, they escaped, probably did happen. Yeah. So so this one makes a lot of sense. Loads of people want parrots. Yeah. They get transported a lot um, across borders, both legally and illegally. Um, it makes sense that at some point, in fact, not at one single point, but on multiple occasions, yeah, so some that, of them happened. escaped from somewhere. Yeah. yeah. And there have actually been documented examples of this thing in the US. There was a big one. What else is plausible is the Great Storm of 1987. Yeah. Um, like a bunch of Avery's got damaged. Yeah, damage to loads and loads escaped, essentially. Um, yeah, that also... Which is a feasible theory. Feasible. That, that could have accelerated their spread, I think, something yeah. like that. But that's just one example. You know, the Great Storm was, was this massive, like, climate disaster. Huge, yeah, like, cyclone... Um, type thing yeah in 1987 yeah, I think 18 people died yeah quite a few that was so it was it was pretty bad essentially yeah, it, but was, it was yeah, it's, not it's just one example of of one of the many events um that, that could have started that this have added to the this. invasive species yeah like so i guess people want to believe in one definitive thing but the but reality it was, is it it's probably was many, many many events spread out over the centuries yeah and um, also over quite many centuries quite, it turns quite a while. Up, yeah the yeah. Um, first documented ones were in like 18 yeah, like 18, uh, it was eighteen eighteen eighties or eighteen nineties. Eighteen ninety three was yeah. the first recorded sighting, but Which yeah, they were really they were really popular, as you said, and but obviously you know the animals they carried diseases. Yeah, there was a big like parrot fever scare in I want to yeah. say the thirties. Yeah, when everyone started panicking about dying from yeah. parrot related so diseases. So people like individual people would release their parrots, and mm. obviously that really added to the influx of parrots these specific parrots are really weirdly well adapted to live in england they are perfect to, i mean it's not hard to see why though you know i think london is the kind of city specifically london where there's just enough green yeah. in like the royal parks basically to attract parrots but then also obviously a huge amount of waste food to sustain them yeah. so and they're not picky they eat anything unlike the kakapo they, um, they are you know they they eat you know chips baby birds <laughs> apples whatever they you know all parents i think have a preference for nuts and seeds that's kind of like their yeah that is the staple food. yeah they are their staple foods but most of them are very opportunistic they eat essentially anything and uh, parakeets are no different on that note i think uh we have to end the episode we've hit the yeah. two hour mark we have to end this on uh the rather disappointing note that the exciting stories normally aren't true no um, they're never true but we can dream on yeah and I think that's a little kernel of hope that we can all take <laughs> away from this episode. What, um, Jimi Hendrix did yeah. start the bird uh, plague. Yeah, it might not have been Jimi Hendrix, but people want to believe that it is. Yeah. And that has a certain magic of its own. On that happy little yeah, sign-off note. Yeah, little cheery note. Yeah, thank you very much for listening. Thank we you. don't take your attention for granted. Uh, we very much appreciate that you've taken the time to listen to this episode. And we'll see you next week with another interesting animal. Yeah. Goodbye. Bye.